Well, friends, how good is it to see the youth choir in the chancel today? Isn't that a marvelous thing? Uh, we give thanks to God for all of you. My first two churches that I served weren't as big as this youth choir right here. And James and Greg and Patsy and to our brass, uh, we can't wait to hear what God has to share with us through your voices. We're grateful to our brass this morning. Uh, this is music fit for a king. And today, uh, the music has blessed our hearts uh, as well as the fellowship. We're taking our text this morning from Luke's gospel. We could have taken it from any of the four gospels, but we're choosing to look at Dr. Luke's particular account of the empty tomb. And out of reverence for God and his word, I invite you to stand for the reading. Dear friends, hear the word of the living God. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified, bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must, must be handed over to sinners and be crucified? And on the third day, rise again. And then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter... Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stopping, stooping, and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and then he went home amazed at what had happened. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. You be seated. All four gospel accounts record the fact that it was the women who were first to arrive at the tomb. Incidentally, they were also the last to leave the cross. And so according to Luke, honorable mention is given them in chapter 24, verse 10. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others. We know they had taken up with Jesus early in his ministry in Galilee along with the 12, and now here they are marking the spot where Joseph of Arimathea had laid his body to rest. With the Sabbath beginning at sundown on Friday, they would wait until Sunday to pay their respects. They would have to wait until Sunday morning to make the arrangements to do grief's work. I can only imagine that the day in between Friday and Sunday must have been a blur. It must have been surreal to them. 
It's interesting how we in our tradition refer to the in-between day as Holy Saturday. I don't think there's anything holy about it. Call it somber Saturday, call it sad sack Saturday, call it solemn Saturday, but anything but holy. Don't you know they tried to stay busy doing mechanical things, mundane, routine things that didn't require them to think? Because I don't have to tell you, you can't think straight on the day after. I mean, your eyes may be open, but you can't see. Your ears may be unstopped, but you, you can't hear. Your heart is still pumping, but you can't feel. You know the feeling, grief. Some of you have been through it this year. Some of you are going through it now. Grief is the most exhausting of all human emotions. In fact, Rabbi Earl Grohlman wrote more than two dozen books, this Jewish priest, on the subject of bereavement. Says Dr. Grohlman in one of his books, grief is love not wanting to let go. I heard him speak when I was a young pastor. He died in November in 2021, he was 96. A humorous man, I remember him saying, I must have been 30 when I heard him. He said, and I quote, grief is not a disorder. It's not a disease or a sign of weakness. It's an emotional, physical, and spiritual necessity. Grief is the price you pay for love. And the only cure for grief is to grieve. It's true. Baseball season just started and I've had Yogi Berra on my mind. I remember something he once said. He said, always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. <laughs> I think it was Woody Allen who said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Grief. One of my favorite poems, it's a, it's a haunting poem was written by W.H. Auden. It's called Funeral Blues. Do you know it? Stop all the clocks. Cut off the telephone. Prevent the dog from barking with the juicy bone. Silence the pianos and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let airplanes circle, moaning overhead, scribbling in the sky the message, he is dead. Put crepe bows around the white necks of the public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west. My working week and Sunday rest. My noon and midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out every one, pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood, for nothing now can ever come to any good. Such is the sentiment of somber Saturday, the day after. You know the feeling? 
And by the way, so did the disciples, so did the 11. Now Judas is gone. John's gospel says that on the day after, the disciples could be found barricaded behind locked doors of grief and shame. But something happened on the third day. Something happened on Sunday morning that somehow interrupted their grief. On the way to the cemetery, to the graveyard, the women saw that the stone that had covered the entrance to the tomb had been removed. And when they went into the entrance, when they went into the grave, they discovered that the body was missing. And I love the way Luke, Luke understates everything. He says, they were perplexed. You think? The Greek word is diapareo. You know what that means? It means they were totally baffled. It means they were mentally bewildered, confused. Now we all know about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of death and dying, don't we? It starts with denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. But with no body, with no remains to grieve over, these women, between anger and depression, now on top of it, add perplexity. They're confused. Now, I may be wrong, but I don't think their first thought was resurrection. I don't. I think their first thought was grave robbers, tomb raiders. The first thought that they had was body snatchers. And suddenly, says Luke, suddenly, two men in dazzling clothes stand beside them. Now, if you can imagine for just a moment, it says they were terrified, they were scared, silly, and notice the language, they bowed their faces to the ground. Whenever you see that phrase, bowing our heads, it's indicative of worship, and the messenger speaks. What are girls like you doing in a place like this? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Don't, watch this, don't you remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners, be crucified, and on the third day rise again? And at that point, hope begins to flicker when they remember what he said. There's a couple of key points that I wanna stress at this point in the text. This is the first. When crisis comes, when a pandemic comes, when violence begins, when a war starts, when the crisis comes, we sometimes somehow forget for a moment our faith. I think it's a part of our humanity. Grief and fear can actually sometimes cause a kind of temporary amnesia. There's a term for it, PTA, it's post-traumatic amnesia. That is the idea that in the cruciform of our experience that somehow sorrow and grief can numb our memory. Now, I know what you're thinking, age can do it too. We call it a senior moment. I'm now approaching that age where my train of thought leaves the station without me. And grief 
can do that too. We've been living through some stuff <laughs> the last two years, haven't we? In this, what we call the great resignation, who among us hasn't had those moments where we've thought, I didn't sign up for this. I can't do this. We've been living through grief. I remember two Easter's ago, standing up to preach and looking out and nobody was here. It was empty. I haven't preached to that much wood since we used to have Sunday night services. <laughs> and I'll tell you, flesh is much more responsive than wood. We had no idea. We had no concept of how long that something like this would happen. Crisis can cause us to disremember temporarily. The other key point at this point in the text to me is I want you to notice in that cemetery that the messenger's job, he has one job, they have one job, and that is to remind these grieving souls of what Jesus said. What did he say? The Son of Man must be handed over to sinful men, be mocked, insulted, spit upon, and after they have flogged him, they will put him on a tree, but on the third day he will rise again. And Jesus said that three times in Luke's gospel before it ever happened. These graveyard shift messengers are essentially saying to the women, hey, we hate to be the ones to say, we told you so, but we told you so. This is one of those times where you want to hear Jesus say, I told you so. Sometimes the church needs messengers to remind us of what we already know, but have disremembered. It reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite philosophers that I studied in seminary and in college, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, theologian, had this to say about messengers or preachers. Listen to this. People have an idea that the preacher is an actor on a stage and that they are the critics blaming or praising him. What they don't know is that they are actually the actors on the stage and the preacher is merely the prompter standing in the wings, reminding them of their lost lines. That's my job this morning. That's your job this morning. And so I want to take just a moment to remind you of some of our lost lines. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. That's what the man said. I will not leave you as orphans, but will give you a comforter, a counselor, an advocate, a Holy Spirit, who will bring all things that I have said to your remembrance. That's what he said. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask what you will and it will be done unto you. That's what the man said. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. I am the resurrection and the, and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Don't you remember? Remembering is vital to spiritual formation because you cannot remember something that you have never known. This is the necessity of Bible study. I have to tell you, on Monday, Thursday, Jim and Shelby, when we did the stripping of the altar in the darkness, when I took that big book, the Bible, and slammed it shut and carried it out of the church as though our story was finished, I almost broke down and wept when I realized how much we love that book because the written word reveals the living word. Don't you remember what he said? When the women remembered what Jesus said, what did they do? They put the pedal to the metal. All of a sudden, these sauntering women are now running, they're returning, they're beating a path to the apostles. Now, whenever I think of, of running or, or hiking, I, I think of Radnor. Have I ever mentioned Radnor to you? They had a capital campaign recently, and this was their slogan, put your money where your feet are. Oh, I like that. Reminds me of Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings, good news. What's happening with the women is there is suddenly a sense of urgency. Something has to be done. Someone has to be told. The news is so great that all of a sudden they get happy feet. That's interesting in Matthew and Mark. Watch it. In Matthew and Mark, in this part of the story, the messengers command the women to go and tell the disciples. But in Luke, that's not there. Why? Because they don't have to be commanded. They don't have to be told. There is some news that is so good, that is so redemptive, that is so life-changing. You don't have to be coerced to share it. In fact, you can't help it but share it. And then watch the response. When the women tell the disciples what they've experienced, they don't get it, at least initially. In fact, I appreciate the honesty of Dr. Luke. Verse 11 says they thought it was an idle tale. They thought the women were delirious. They thought it was utter nonsense. And it occurs to me that sometimes, sometimes, when the hearers reject the message, we shoot the messenger. Sometimes, when the hearers don't receive the good news, we blame the messenger. We need a new preacher. It's horse trading season in the United Methodist Church right now. But I've discovered it's not always the mouth of the messenger that's the issue. Sometimes it's the heart of the hearer. Sometimes it's my own ears that are stopped up to the undying goodness and grace of God. 
Well, Jesus experienced the same thing in his ministry, and so did Isaiah. In fact, if you look at Matthew 13, Jesus one day in a moment of discouragement said, my people look, but they don't see. They listen, but they don't understand because their hearts have grown dull and their ears of hard of hearing. But blessed are the eyes that see. Blessed are your ears when you get it. We... Brentwood, United Methodist Church, 21st century believers, like the disciples of old, have to experience Jesus for ourselves in order to understand. Listen, until our knowledge becomes experience, we don't get it. Information alone doesn't bring salvation. Revelation brings salvation. Until knowledge becomes experience, there is no witness. But in the very next story, they do get it. If you read the rest of Luke's gospel, 13 and following, there's that story of the road to Emmaus. I love that story. Two of the disciples on Sunday evening, confused, Perplexed about the weekend events are walking west towards the setting sun to Emmaus. Their hope has become hoped. It's past tense. And while they're walking their own personal Via Dolorosa, they're joined by a stranger. Their eyes are kept from recognizing it's Jesus. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, He interprets what the scripture has to say about himself. And when they get to the end of the road, it's dinner time. They invite this stranger to stay for supper. And he says, okay. And as is the case, as is the tradition among the Jews, whoever is the guest plays host. And the stranger took the bread and he blessed it and broke it. And their eyes were opened. They got it. Did not our hearts burn with us as he walked along the road and broke open the scriptures? They understood. They experienced. And the experience of their heart gave them happy feet. And they ran all the way back to Jerusalem to share the good news. Last word. A while back, Sherry and I attended a concert at the Skirmerhorn. We love the Skirmerhorn. It was a concert called Violins of Hope. Some of you have heard of it. The Nashville Symphony Orchestra played music on these old restored violins that had been recovered from concentration camps during the Holocaust. Mr. Amnon Weinstein has spent the last two decades of his life collecting and restoring these instruments. He sat behind us in the concert. We met him and heard his story. Sherry and I, as we often do, we went to the lecture before the concert to hear what would be said about these instruments. The concert master, who is the first violinist, said when they delivered these instruments, I played all of them. There were 18 violins that were delivered. I played them all. But there was one in particular that chose me. On the back of it, someone had carved a Star of David, and it was from Auschwitz. 
He took the bow, the violin, and when that bow touched the strings, it was an epiphany. This old piece of dead wood that had witnessed death and destruction began to sing again. It came to life in our hearing, and so did we. That same night, as the orchestra was playing later, as the maestro was conducting the music, I noticed that the reflection of one of the spotlights against the hanging microphones was making the shape of a cross on the maestro's back. It was a confirmation to us that there are some things that death cannot touch. You cannot suppress the melody of hope. You cannot silence the Easter song. You cannot keep Christ in a grave. Unlike two years ago, today the house is full, and I don't know, there may yet be some dead wood in the pews, but if there is, I'm telling you, you're in the right place because Christ is here. He is closer to you than the air that you breathe, and he's doing some resurrecting work in us so that we too might actually become a messenger who doesn't have to be told to go and tell. You just can't help it. And so in a world that is stuck between anger and depression, I've got some news for you today that will interrupt grief and turn your mourning into dancing I'm telling you, weeping will remain for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And friends, it's morning. <laughs> it's Easter morning. And it's time for dead wood to sing. In Jesus' name. <laughs>